I'd like to begin today talking or asking a question, really a twofold question. I think the text asks it, and I want to ask it to you in behalf of Jesus. Does your conviction about Jesus match your commitment to Jesus? Let me say it again. Does your conviction about Jesus match your commitment to Jesus? So your conviction might be that Jesus is Lord of all. But the question is still unanswered unless you are able to say that Jesus is Lord of all of me. You might be, as your conviction say, is Jesus the master of the universe? But in your commitment, is Jesus the master of your universe? In other words, let me ask the question another way. Are you a committed disciple of Christ? By definition, discipleship is an unconditional loyalty to follow Jesus no matter what. Discipleship in the Bible, according to Jesus, is not merely just another commitment we make amongst many others. Discipleship is not a commitment, according to Jesus. It is the commitment of our lives. Case in point, when you get married, I, I'm going to celebrate 33 years of marriage coming up here soon. And when I said my vows to my wife, Chris, I did not just make a commitment to her as many other commitments I'd made to other women. No, I wanted to be devoted to her alone for life. And so it wasn't just a commitment I made on my marriage day or that you made. It is the commitment of my life when it comes to my relationship with the Lord or with my wife. And this commitment to her controls all the other relationships I have with any other women. So there are other people, my, my sisters, my mom, uh, ladies in this church in Christ, that I love them, but not the same way I love my wife. My love for her is supreme in the affections of my heart. In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, the second paragraph, the latter half of this text, Jesus is requiring the three would-be followers of him to give their all-encompassing, comprehensive devotion to him. And that's true not just for these three, by the way. It's for anyone who would follow Jesus. And if you... We're listening when I read the text, you'll find that these people and the requirements that he has for them, they're pretty stiff requirements. They're unbending, they're unyielding requirements. And you might, after reading them, begin to think in your own mind, how is it possible that anyone could follow Jesus like that? I mean, what could possibly enable us to give ourselves completely away to him more than anyone or anything else in life? And that's why I read the first paragraph for you, because I think the first paragraph is the foundation for the second one. And I would submit to you this morning that in verses 51 through 56, that Jesus' single-minded focus on doing the will of the Father, even when it comes to giving himself completely away on the cross, is the motivation and it is the model for everyone who would follow Jesus. Follow me because I want to make an argument for this, but let me set this passage in its context. In Luke's gospel, it has what commentators call the travel narrative. It begins in chapter 9, verse 51, where we started today, and it ends all the way in chapter 19, and verse 44. They call it the travel narrative because all the events that take place in the key phrases many times used, on the road, 
on the road to Jerusalem. All these events are to be seen in light of the shadow of the cross because this is uh, the narration of Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem where he will die on the cross for the sins of the world. Jerusalem, the name of the city, is used 31 times in the Gospel of Luke. Six times in the birth narrative, three times in Jesus' ministry narrative, but 22 of them in the travel narrative that includes his cross death. So Jerusalem is obviously the focus. The entire passage that we've read today needs to be seen in light of what Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do. And the text doesn't leave us guessing about what he is trying to fulfill or accomplish. In chapter 9, in verse 31, which is a verse in the middle of the Mount of Transfiguration, here's what the text says about why he's going to Jerusalem. In chapter 9, and verse 31, it reads... That, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, read it there, departure. It is the Greek word exodus. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and in his death on the cross, he being the greater Moses that was seen with him on the mount, he is going to bring the second exodus, the new exodus. The exodus that he will set his people free like Moses, but in a far greater way, he will set them free from their sins which is the greatest slavery of all. So that's why he's going to Jerusalem. And the text says that when the days drew near, verse 51 of Luke 9, for him to be taken up, that he would have his ascension, that, that word is used three times in Acts 1, to describe Jesus going back to heaven, when the day that he's going to fulfill his ministry and the mission that he was given by his father to die and rise again, he's going to be taken up. He has set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's used twice in the text. It is describing Jesus' purpose. He has set his face. He has determined to go to the cross. And when he comes to this Samaritan village, which, by the way, Jesus didn't have to go from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria, but often chose to do because he loved people. And it didn't matter what kind of people they were. And that's what the cross is all about. So he chooses to go through Samaria, but he comes to a village... And the Bible says they don't receive him. That word is the same word, if you please turn to chapter 9 and verse 5. It means to welcome. It means to show kindness. And truthfully, it means to show hospitality. And in an honor-shame culture, like it was in the Middle East and still is to this day, if someone comes into your village and you don't show them into your house and you don't feed them and take care of them, in fact, you don't even want them to come into your village, it is a very shameful act to do. It's very dishonoring. And Jesus had told his disciples just a few days previous in chapter 9 and verse 5 that when they go to certain villages and they announce the kingdom and who he is, if people don't receive, same word, see verse 5, chapter 9, verse 5, and it says, and whatever or wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet. In other words, pronounce judgment on them because if they don't receive you in my representing me, then they've rejected me. And Jesus says, shake the dust off if they don't welcome you in. So here he comes to a village, and it's not just the disciples they're rejecting, it's Jesus himself. They don't receive him at all. And so here's the idea going through their mind. Ready? If Jesus told us, when we go to the village and represent him, that they don't receive us, that we're to shake the dust off our feet, and that's what we should do When it's just us, what should we do if it's Jesus himself they reject? He's coming personally to their village 
but they don't want to receive him. They want to welcome him. They don't want to show hospitality to him. That's why, as far-fetched as it seems, as much of an overreaction that it might look to our first glance at this passage, here's what happens when they send the messengers and they reject, they don't receive him. Verse 54 says, And when his disciples James and John saw it, and they don't call him son of thunder for nothing, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Wow, that seems a little bit stiff, doesn't it? Sounds out of line. But the argument in their mind is, if they did this to us and Jesus said, shake the dust off your feet, what about our master? Are we to let them dishonor him and publicly shame him like that without saying anything? In fact, the New King James adds to this verse this little phrase. Do you want us to call down fire just like Elijah did? I mean, the disciples not only know that Jesus is the greater Moses and the Exodus, but he's also the greater Elijah. And in their mind, seeing him on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're thinking in their mind, I think, that remember when they came to arrest Elijah and he was on top of the mountain, 2 Kings chapter 1, and they brought 50 soldiers to get him and arrest him. And what did he do? Oh, he called down fire from heaven on him and devoured and consumed them all. And not only once, but twice. I mean, a hundred guys died when they tried to get him because what? Because they rejected the lesser Elijah. And in their mind thinking, our master is far greater than Elijah in the Old Testament. And if they called down fire from heaven then, when they rejected the first Elijah, what about the greater Elijah? Shouldn't we call down fire to make sure that we're standing up for his honor? But see, subversively, Jesus does what they're not thinking he would ever do. He doesn't tell them, bring it down. Consume them. You know what he does? He rebukes. But he doesn't rebuke the Samaritans for their lack of honor. No, rather instead he rebukes his own disciples. New King James again adds to the rebuke statement these words. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You don't know what spirit you are of. See, it's possible to be around Jesus and to be his disciple or call yourself that for three plus years and still not know what it really means to follow him. See, they've been living with him, watching him, hearing him, seeing him for all of these years. And when it comes down to the most pivotal time of his life and ministry, they still don't get what his kingdom is all about. See, when they came to arrest Elijah, he called fire down from heaven and destroyed them. When they come just a few pages from now to arrest Jesus in the garden, he doesn't devour and destroy people. He reaches out his hand and heals people. Because he's a different kind of Elijah. In fact, would you turn to Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 12? Don't get me wrong, Jesus is going to bring a fire on the earth. He says as much in the passage that we're going to look at together. But a far different kind of fire than Elijah is going to bring or did bring. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 49, Jesus says, I came. Here's the purpose I came. I came to cast fire on the earth. Yes, I'm going to bring fire. 
Don't, I am like, I mean, in chapter 9, verse 8, they, all the people are saying, well, he's like Elijah. He's like Jeremiah. I mean, they, they thought that he was like him, but he's going to tell them, I'm like him, but I'm not exactly like him. Let me tell you the difference between him and me. I'm going to send fire. I'm going to cast fire on the earth. And would to be, he says, it's an emotional phrase, that it were already kindled. And then he's going to repeat the phrase in a different way and tell you what he means. What kind of fire? Why does he already wish it were kindled? I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress literally means to be crushed. It says, until it is accomplished. What fire he's going to bring? He's not going to have fire come down from heaven to consume people. He is the fire come down from heaven to save people. See, he's not going to have a fire that burns someone else up. It's a fire that will burn him up instead. That's the difference. That's the difference. Jesus is going to give himself completely away, sacrificially, purposely, in order to do the Father's will. He isn't going to consume others. He himself on the cross is going to be consumed, as it were, with our sins. That's the fire. Not fire on others but taking their fire on himself. See, Jesus giving away himself completely and sacrificially is the basis of your and my call to discipleship. How can Jesus, in the next paragraph, tell people to leave everyone and everything, take it all, give it all away, or whatever the case he does? How can he say those things? How can he have such stiff requirements? Because this is exactly what he has done for you and me. He has given himself away. He is going to Jerusalem to take on the fire and the judgment that we deserve. He is going to give himself away sacrificially, completely, unconditionally, without any strings attached to it. And he says, and if you want to be my disciple, and you want to follow me, that is the road for you as well. And so the basis of 57 through 62, and all that we're going to say in the remainder of our time, is based on this. But that's what the rabbi did. Jesus, our rabbi, our master, our Lord. See, he gave himself away. That's why he rebukes them. Because their mindset of what the kingdom is and what he's about and what it means the son of man, completely wrong. They still don't get it. And maybe you're here and you've come to church for years and message after message and small groups and Sunday school and you've heard these things, but you're still not getting it. Jesus says, my kingdom is not a power over kingdom. It is a power under kingdom. It's not one that consumes others with my rhetoric on Facebook, on internet, with people that we don't agree with. It isn't trying to win every argument. It isn't trying to be right. You know what it is? It is following Jesus. And when people would consume, we heal. And people torture, we touch. We stand for truth and we don't compromise, water it down, not one iota. But Jesus says, my kingdom is this, a cross first and a crown second. And if you want to follow me, the requirements will be stiff. And so he says in verse 57, the Bible says, and as they were going along the road, what road? Well, the road that leads to Jerusalem, the road that leads to Calvary, the road that leads to be spit on and slapped and flogged and scourged and beaten and pierced 
the road that leads to death. So what does it look like if you want to follow Jesus? It looks like being totally committed. In the text, we have three people who pledge their commitment to Jesus. They say they want to follow him, but to our knowledge, not one of them truly did. Jesus is going to, in this text, and my prayer is and has been that in your heart, going to test your commitment to him. Does your commitment to him match your conviction about him? The first kind of commitment that is not befitting the kingdom, his words, not mine. The type of discipleship that he's looking for that match the kind of sacrifice that he gave, I call it surface commitment. In verses 57 and verse 58 in chapter 9, let me read it again for you. I will follow you, the first man says, wherever you go. Now, on the surface, doesn't that sound good? I mean, isn't that something that you would like to say? Maybe you have said to Jesus. It seems like there are no geographical limitations. Jesus, tell me where you're going and I'll follow. And it sounds really good until Jesus fleshes out and gives him a little more detail about where he is going and what it is like in where he is going. And Jesus is going to say to him, let me say in 21st century vernacular, you're going to have to rough it if you go with me. Following me on the road may be an off-road experience. You may need some four-wheel drive spirituality to be able to follow me around. And here's the question, are you okay with that? I didn't know it that when I followed Jesus and became his disciple that I would have to do a lot of things I didn't want to do. If you know anything about me, I'm not a camper. I don't like to camp in tents. I don't like to eat food over a fire. I like the Holiday Inn Express. And I like air conditioning. I don't like to sweat. I don't like to have ticks on my body while I'm sleeping, spiders over my head, snakes near my tent, bears hovering in the woods, not into those things, but I've done all of those things. Um, I've been to the Rockies twice on backpacking trips, Um, amazing trips, but I don't know if I want to do it again. I've slept on the floor in South Dakota on an Indian reservation where everyone on the mission trip with us was almost deathly sick. I've been to sleep on the floor in the Kuna Islands in Panama. I've showered only in a water bucket many times in Haiti. I've gone to the bathroom at the end of a dock where all there was was a hole. Why would you do all those things? I didn't think about it. I didn't sign up for it. But Jesus says, will you follow me wherever I go? See, I've come to realize this. Discipleship means patterning your life after Jesus in everything. Not just the things you like, not the things you prefer, but everything. And so in doing so, it's taken me, and many of you as well, to places you probably wouldn't choose to, in circumstances and situations and environments that you wouldn't choose. I remember being in Haiti, stopping at a, 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 a traffic, a whole, I should say, where lots of guys were holding up all the traffic with machine guns. I remember a guy coming right up to us and telling us that if we didn't give him so, many, so much money that we weren't going to go by. And we did. I remember going over a bridge that only had two metal beams on it over the river because they had washed it out. And the two metal beams, and I had a 12-year-old kid 
we had each tire on each beam going over the river, and he was going like this, and we were panning him to do this. As he walked backwards, we drove forwards. Now, I would never, I would never choose all those things. But you do. See, I did choose all those things when I chose to follow Jesus. Because wherever means wherever. And Jesus begins to tell him, you know what wherever means? Let me tell you what you're asking, what you're signing up for. It means foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, four times in this text, he calls himself Son of The Son of Man, he doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. In other words, I don't go home at night. I don't go to the air conditioning. There is no Holiday Inn Express where I live. You want to follow me? It's going to mean all those things and more because the road to Calvary isn't easy. See, following Jesus always includes, can I say it always includes a leaving. You have to leave your comfort. You have to leave your convenience. You have to leave your purposes, your agenda, your story. It also specifically means leaving your home because Jesus says, I don't have one. I've given up all of those things. Can you do that? Would you be willing to do that? Would you be able to rough it physically if you needed to for Christ? How about financially? He says, follow me, give me 10%, and then give more to others. See, can you do that? Would, would you do that? Are you doing that? Hey, would you rough it relationally? Because you know if you follow me and you put your priorities here and you put your values here and you put your money here and this is what governs your relationship, did you know this? Not everyone's going to like that. Did you know they may not like it in your home? Your spouse may not like it. Your kids may not. Your parents may not. And Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34 through 38, he says, listen, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. So that father would be against son, and mother would be against daughter, and daughter-in-law against the in-laws. He says, and if you love your father, mother, more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love anything more than me, you're not worthy of me, and you need to take up your cross, by the way, he said, and follow me. See, those are Jesus' words to us, but they fall on deaf ears too often Because not everything in our life is patterned in following Jesus. Surface commitment. That could be some of us. Maybe you see yourself in these three people. That I really want to follow Jesus and I know what he really wants. And I I, I want to say I could give it to him. But when it comes down to where the rubber meets the literal road to Calvary. Often we find it to be a different story. Surface commitment. Secondly, delayed commitment. The next two examples both have this distinguishing mark. They both start with the word first. Can you see it in the text? Once in verse 59 and once in verse 61. Let me go first and bury my father. Now this guy had, and maybe this is you, this guy had good intentions. He planned on following Jesus, and he was going to do it somehow, someday, but just not now. So he says, let me first go bear my father. Now, it seems legit, and in that culture it really was. But let me tell you about that culture. It was an honor-shame culture, as I said before. And your relationship and your responsibilities to your family were of supreme importance. And obviously that's a good thing. None of us are debating that. But the obligation to go bury your father wasn't that he just died and you had a funeral next week. 
The obligation commentator says that you go home and take care of your dad because he's older, getting up in years, and maybe some time's going to pass. You're going to settle his estate. You're going to bury him, take care of your family because you're the older son. And commentators say that it could take a year, two years, or more. So the guy's not asking, hey, I'll be going to this funeral this weekend and I'm coming back. No, he's asking, hey, hey, when, when things get settled in my life and I take care of my parents and honor them the way I should, I'll be back. I'll be back. But Jesus wants this man to know, and Jesus wants you to know, that your relationship with him must be the most important relationship of all, Period. More than anyone else, more than anything else, in Yoda-like fashion, Jesus would say, follow now or follow not. There is no later. There is no later. Why? Jesus tells him why. Let the dead bury the dead. In other words, outside of following Jesus, there is no life at all. Let people who are dead spiritually bury the other people who are dead spiritually. But if you want to have life, you want to know life, have life, eternal life, you cannot find it apart from me, and that trumps everything else. So above the great responsibility of honoring your parents comes honoring me, he says. For Jesus, it's all or nothing. There is no discipleship light. There are no weekend warriors that follow him just at service times. There's no spring break or summer vacation from Jesus. Jesus would say, delayed commitment is not discipleship commitment. And you might be here this morning and say, let me first get through high school. You know, I'm only a teenager. Let me get through this stuff, have some fun, do my own thing. Then I'll follow you, Jesus. See, let me first get married, then I have some kids, get them old enough. When I get all that stability and that stuff settled in my life, then I'll follow you. Let me first save up enough money so I can get a house, have a car, start my retirement, and then I'll follow you. Jesus says, no, it's now. Now, let all those things go in comparison to following me, because the sacrifice I made for you wasn't delayed. He says, follow me now, right now. But Pastor Walker, you don't know. I know I don't know. He does. You know what he says? Follow me now. Surface commitment won't cut it. Delayed commitment, putting it off to a more convenient time, that won't cut it. And Jesus says qualified commitment won't either. In verse 61, Yet another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And then Jesus says this, notice the exclusivity. No one. There are no exceptions to what I'm saying. I'm going to tell you what's unequivocally true for everyone, everyone who desires to follow me. No one, he says, who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. You know, when Elijah called Elisha, to be his disciple. Elisha asked Elijah, can I go back, sell my plow, and say goodbye to my family? Elijah said yes. Jesus says no. Why? Because he's greater than Elijah. And following him 
is more important than following Elijah or anyone or anything else in this world. He says, there are no exceptions to this discipleship rule. Here it is. If you look back, if you look at what Jesus is calling to you and leaving behind, if you look back to those things, you are not fit, he says. You're not fit. You are not usable. You cannot fit into the kingdom of God. This very book, Luke 17, 32, Jesus, in very solemn few words, says this, remember Lot's wife. Remember her? She's instructed to leave Sodom and Gomorrah and not look back. But halfway there, halfway there, she got up the hill and she looked back because that's where her heart really was. I don't know if Jesus just knew that if this guy went home first, that his family would talk him out of his commitment. I don't know. But listen, here's what Jesus says. You can't follow me and look back. Israel looked back. Remember in the wilderness, they got so far out in the desert and it was bad and they were hungry and thirsty and they started complaining and they wanted to kill Moses. And here's what they said. We need to have a different leader because we want to go back to Egypt. Remember the cucumbers and the melons and how good it was? It wasn't good back there. But to them, they believe the lie. Why? Because their present circumstances were difficult. And see, maybe you're here this morning and perhaps you're following Jesus, you're trying to follow Jesus, but you've come into some difficulties. I mean, some real problems, some barriers and things going wrong in your life. Maybe your marriage isn't your kids and your job and your finances and some health difficulties. It's tempting, isn't it? It's tempting to look backwards. But Jesus says, here's what you need to do if you're my disciple. Burn your bridges. Burn your bridges and never go back. I don't know about you, but the New Year's and probably five times in between during the year, I make this resolution to lose weight and to diet. You know what I found out? Don't go back to opening the fridge seven times a day if you've made a commitment to lose weight. I don't know why I go open both doors, I look inside, what am I doing? It's in between, there's no reason for it. I do, you can't do, you can't go back to opening the door or the fridge all the time if you want to lose weight. This is a no-brainer, right? You don't go back to the bar scene if you just made a commitment to sobriety. Am I not right? I mean, you don't go back to being on the internet late at night or by yourself when everybody else is in bed if you want to stop looking at pornography. Am I not right? If you made a commitment to purity, you don't go back to that. Right? You don't go back to explaining to your immoral girlfriend that you have a bad relationship or your immoral boyfriend. You don't go back and explain to him why you're not going to have a relationship anymore. You know what? You don't have one anymore. Period. You're done. Right? Don't go back to your old set of friends. I mean, if you just made a commitment, I'm going to follow Jesus and now I'm going to be obedient to him. You don't go back to all of your lost friends and be buddy-buddy with them like you were before. You can't go back. You can't look back. Because when you decide to follow Jesus, there's always going to be a commitment conflict, isn't there? Always. It's so easy to go back to the old way of thinking, the old way of talking, the old way of living, this is what you know. It's what you're familiar with. It's what everybody else knows you to be. And now you're going to be something different. And now you're going to follow Jesus. 
And now you don't say those words and talk that way and tell those jokes, think that way, go to those movies, read those books. See, it's all different. Why? Because you've made a commitment and you can't go back. Look at every one of the examples in our text. Every one of them, every, one, every excuse to not follow Jesus was a result to a higher commitment to something else. And the scary thing about it was, they're not all bad commitments. Is it wrong to be committed to your family? To love them? To be with them? To want to honor them? No. And that's just the thing. Satan will throw a lot of higher commitments to you that are just inherently wrong and you know it. Those are the obvious ones and we have to deal with them. You know what the harder things are? Things that aren't bad in and of themselves. But can I tell you frankly, nothing can be given a higher priority than your walk with Jesus. Nothing can. It's even possible, please hear me, it's possible to use God to make your family better. God is no longer the end. He's not the goal. He just becomes a means to the end. And so you put your kids in church and you bring them to church, not because you're honoring God, because if something else comes up, you'll just drop church. If a sports event comes up, more homework comes up, you drop him. But you bring him to church because you're using God as a means to the end. What do I mean by that? That you want him to be here because you want them to learn to be moral. You don't want them to get in trouble. You want them to have values. You want them to include God in their lives. But listen, the reality is you don't want him to be their everything. Because you teach him all the time by your choices and the ones that you let them make that he can be categorized, marginalized, that we want to follow him and say that we're his disciples, but not go all in. See, there's nothing wrong with living at home and enjoying that security. There's nothing wrong with loving your family and loving your kids. Unless it becomes the commitment and not just a commitment. See, only Jesus and following him can be the commitment. And the reason we struggle with this it's because all of us have this large gap between what we believe in theory and what we actually practice. And there are a lot of followers, maybe more honestly, clearly, fans of Jesus here, who in theory want to say they are his disciple, but in practice, it may be something completely different. Following Christ means putting aside, if necessary, everyone and everything that is a hindrance to that one goal. Jesus says, if you look back, you are not fit for the kingdom. So let me end where I began. And the question is this. Does your conviction about Jesus match your commitment to Jesus? Let's pray. One of my favorite songs is a simple one. You know it by heart. You perhaps don't even need the book. I have decided to follow Jesus. And our over-familiarity with it is perhaps just a small picture, an indication of our over-familiarity with Jesus' call to discipleship. We can sing the words, 
with our lips, can't we? Myself included. Oh, but it's such a different thing, isn't it, to sing those words with our lives? To come down to the altar, so to speak, and kneel doesn't change anyone. You know that. But maybe some public declaration would be necessary for you in order to give you some humility because you're going to have to admit today if the Spirit of God is so working in your heart through his word that my theory and practice don't match, that my convictions about Jesus don't match my commitments to him. And maybe it's one area, maybe it's multiple areas, maybe it's a large swath of your life. Renewed dedication, renewed discipleship. It doesn't just take place on Sunday mornings. It's every morning, isn't it? Isn't Jesus say, and take up your cross daily and follow me? Would you do that? Are you that kind of disciple? If not, you come as we sing. Father, Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he took our fire. He allowed himself to be crushed willingly. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. I give it willingly. Oh, Father, we don't want to convert, con- force people, coerce people into being disciples. We don't want to guilt people into giving up things for him. Our prayer is that you'd give them a heart that would want to do all those things, just like Jesus' heart. May you go that deep in our lives today that as we renew our discipleship, it might begin in the core of who we are. Speak to us there, we pray, Master, in Jesus' name. Amen.